God is turned to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. I know we finished off a lengthy series on this uh, magnificent book some time ago, but I wanted to return uh, this morning uh, to 1 Corinthians 15 towards the end of the chapter and uh, think here about a wonderful uh, promise which is ours in verse 57. Uh, We'll begin reading with verse 50 this morning. Here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we'll not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have, will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. And here's our text. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Ask God to help us understand. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to the death of the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the power of our enemy, grant us to die to our sin, that we may evermore live in the joy of his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I begin our thinking this morning with one of the most moving, most interesting, and most humbling photographs in the history of photography. And the name of that photograph is the pale blue dot. The pale blue dot. And it was taken in the early months of 1990, about 3.7 million miles out in space being a picture of the earth. I don't know if you've seen it before, but it's quite humbling because the earth is so small. It's such a teeny, tiny little speck that you can barely make it out as it's sort of cloaked in a ray or a shaft of sunlight. And you can't help but thinking as you see this tiny little speck suspended in the vastness of complete desolation of just how small we are. Scientist Carl Sagan waxes poetic about this particular photograph saying, From this distant vantage point, the earth might not seem of particular interest. But for us, it's different. He says, look, that's home to us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. 
the aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forger, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor, explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived here on a mode of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. He says more. No reason to go on with it. I think you get the general drift. There's something he left out, though, that I want us to think about in the backdrop as we approach our passage this morning. And it's significant omission. And that is, in view of all that he has said also, the earth is a vast, sprawling graveyard. It is a vast, sprawling graveyard. It's as if humanity stands shoulder to shoulder and marches in lockstep together toward its common destiny, one generation after the next, straight towards the grave. I want us to hear what we're going to read here in Paul's letters, which is rooted in the book of Isaiah, particularly 25 and 26, against this backdrop because instead of viewing the world as this massive sprawling graveyard, which Isaiah certainly does, he proclaims that there is a wonderful reversal. Isaiah 26, 19, the prophet says, Your dead will live, their corpses will rise, you who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Now, if you just think about that for a moment, there is a glorious reversal that is proclaimed by the prophet here, because Isaiah speaks about a future which is completely contrary to our experience now, because right now the earth is constantly swallowing up the dead. Right now, the dead are cloaked in dust. But Isaiah says, a day of great reversal is coming. The earth, he says, instead of being a tomb, will experience this tremendous reversal and become a life-giving womb, giving life to all of the corpses and human bodies that have ever perished. I want us to think about that reversal this morning because uh, Paul draws off of these passages we're going to see in a moment and he proclaims the way to victory and the fact of victory in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And where I want to begin our reflection this morning is on uh, these powerful words in verse 57 where Paul proclaims a wonderful victory. He says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the victory is where I want to start this morning because it's such a powerful word. It means to be victorious, to conquer, to obtain the victory. And it's emphatic here as Paul proclaims it in verse 57. But notice, prior to telling us about this victory and proclaiming this victory, he accents and sets it off from the flow of the text saying, But thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. 
I want us to think, first of all, what is this victory? And the way uh, the apostle sets up the proclamation of this victory in verse 57, we're led to look back in the text, in the previous context, uh, to learn more about it. And you can begin learning more about this proclaimed victory in verse 54, where we see the very same word in the last phrase of verse 54, where the apostle says, A death is swallowed up in victory. Now we're going to take a moment to unfold that and unwrap how it uh, comes out in the context. In the previous verses here, the apostle has been been speaking about a transformation. He says there's going to be a bodily transformation beginning in verse 50. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And then he says straight out, there's, there's a mystery that he needs to proclaim, uh, that all will be changed. And he explains it will be in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. All these images here are signaling to us that he's talking about uh, the powerful second return of Jesus Christ. But as you get to verse 54, he summarizes and recaps uh, the main issue here. He says, when this perishable will have put off imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come what is written. Notice that when-then connection there. There's a sequence. There's the transformation which comes at the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a victory experienced. As we try to tear into that concept and and unfold it some more, I want us to see these words as it is written. And those words come from Isaiah 25, which is uh, worth uh, turning up for a moment in our Bibles. You see, Paul is proclaiming uh, an ancient prophecy, an ancient prophetic promise from Isaiah 25. And as we think about that, I'll just take a moment to fill in some of the details and the context. This is a song of praise written by the prophet Isaiah, where he praises God, as you'll notice in verse 1, for wonders. And these wonders, he says, uh, are plans which have been formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. In other words, he's referring to the eternal counsel of God by which all events and affairs and experiences are regulated. And he's here praising in particularly the unfolding of this great degree, uh, decree of providence. And it's specifically about the Lord's destructions upon the enemies of the church. You can see that spelled out in verses 2 through 4. He says, you've made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Cities of ruthless nations, he says in verse 3, will revere you. He, uh, he extols the, the comfort of the Lord's protection in verse 4. He says, you've been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. Okay, so you have this extended song of praise and now a marked transition when you hit verse 6 where he begins to uh, rejoice in a future day. It's subsequent to this victory of the Lord over his enemies. And, And following upon that victory, he says the Lord is going to spread out a banquet before his people. All these images of fellowship. But then in verse 7, he says there's something else that's going to happen. 
He says, on this mountain where this fellowship is taking place or is to take place, he says, he will swallow up the covering which is over all people, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. Swallow up, it's kind of an interesting phrase. It means, it means to, um, to consume something, to, t- to internalize, consume it, and get rid of it. Kyle and Delich say uh, that the word pretty much can be understood to, uh, to mean making something disappear. But it's kind of a fascinating image here where the Lord is swallowing up something. And you see the thing that he's swallowing up is this covering. And you say, well, what, what could be a covering uh, that is over all peoples, a veil that's stretched over all the nations? And, and we get some help with understanding what that is as you look towards the end of Isaiah 26, where we see the same kind of imagery. In verse 21, it says, Behold, the Lord is about to come out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Well, what he's referring to is the grave. And what Isaiah says here in this, this, this wonderful poetic language is that the Lord is going to swallow up the grave. And now all the images drop as you come into verse 8. He says he will swallow up death for all time. And it's that phrase right there. The clarification, the drawing out uh, in full force of this promise of verse 7. He will swallow up death for all time. It's that phrase that the Apostle Paul brings into the discussion here, or the proclamation of promise in verse 54 in 1 Corinthians 15. But what I want you to see is that Paul changes the quote. In Isaiah, 50, or Isaiah 24, he said that the Lord would swallow up death forever. And now as you see the quotation in verse 54, you see the subtle change. He says, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. You see, he's changed it. As he examines this promise and then he compares it to Jesus Christ and what he has done, he now says that it's a victory that is won. Well, that's the same victory that Paul speaks of in verse 57. Praising God for giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory, people of God, is resurrection. The victory is resurrection. The complete conquest of death with all of its powers. What we want to think about is we uh, hear that promise proclaimed of this powerful victory, this swallowing up of death, as it were, is uh, the means to it. The means to that victory. And it's interesting, uh, we're going to note probably a couple more times along the way, just how uh, marvelously, carefully structured uh, this whole psalm is. Or rather, this whole passage here in 1 Corinthians 15 is. But as we start thinking about... Uh, this victory and the means to it, I think the first step of getting there is seeing how the uh, Apostle makes this inseparable connection between Christ's death, or rather resurrection, and our resurrection. Several times, uh, Paul fashions this link. For instance, in verse 13, he says, If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. 
Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You see a very explicit uh, repetition of this inseparable connection between Christ's conquest of the grave, Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave, and our own. And the reason why he has done this is because of this false doctrine that is circulating, at least within earshot, of these Corinthians. You can see that false doctrine given expression in verse 12, when the Apostle says, If Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? You see, uh, the problem here that the Apostle Paul is encountering and refuting in 1 Corinthians 15 is a false doctrine which says that the body is an obstacle to true spirituality. It's a false doctrine which says that the best way to get close to Jesus is to get rid of your body. And so what was beginning to circulate and becoming a danger for these Corinthians to believe is that there was no future bodily resurrection. There was no uh, living before the face of the Lord forevermore, body and soul. And so Paul puts his boot to the throat of that false, wicked doctrine saying, if there is no bodily resurrection of the believer, then there's no bodily resurrection of Christ. That's the inseparable connection that Paul hammers out. If there is no bodily resurrection of the believer... There is no bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he causes us to linger over that for a moment. Drawing out all of the the, the horrible implications that are involved in that ideology. He says, if there is no bodily resurrection, if Christ uh, did not rise from the dead, he says, you're still in your sins in verse 17. He says, all of those who have fallen asleep, that is, all those who have died, have perished forevermore. Verse 19, he says, if we as Christians stake our hope and our life in Christ, we are of all men to be pitied. And then, he says in verse 32, if none of this is true, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, if you don't rise from the dead, he said, we might as well just adopt the pagan Lifestyle. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You see, he, he says everything hinges upon this. There's an inseparable connection here. And it's sort of fascinating. As you read 1 Corinthians 15 backwards, it's almost as if you are uh, suspended now upon the horns of a dilemma. He said there's, there's victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's transformation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an inseparable connection between Christ's resurrection and our own. And so the key is the fact of the resurrection. Did Christ really rise from the dead? Everything uh, hinges upon it, as Paul says here. Well, uh, fortunately, we didn't have to wait till the end of the chapter to get the punchline because the Apostle Paul begins with the punchline in 1 Corinthians 15. You see, he begins in verse 1 saying, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. See, he's talking about the past. 
He's bringing up something to them that they, they cannot deny. The record of this preaching is recorded for us in Acts chapter 18. He says, Let, let's just walk down memory lane. Let, let's just see the truth or the facts about history. I came to you and I preached to you the gospel. And then he spells out what the gospel is. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you what's of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins. The first part of the gospel proclamation, and even the first part of the proclamation of the resurrection, is this fact, Christ died. You see, if you don't have a dead Christ, you don't have a resurrection, a resurrected Christ. This is essential to the gospel proclamation. He said, Jesus Christ died. But he doesn't just say that Christ died. It wasn't a terrible accident. It wasn't a terrible tragedy. He says that Christ died for sins. And that's a very important and crucial clarification because Paul says we do not rightly understand the meaning and the significance of Christ's death unless it's about a death for sin. See, the only way to understand and to draw out the meaning and application of this death is to see it as in the place of sinners. Amplified so well and so thoroughly and so repeatedly throughout the epistles. Jesus Christ died for us. He died for our sins. He died in our place. He died as a curse. All of those images can be brought in here. All of those uh, texts, all of that theology can be brought in here. Because precisely what the Apostle Paul is talking about, Christ's death was a death with respect to sin. Dealing with sin. Dealing with its guilt. Dealing with its corruption. Dealing with its power. It's important this morning that we embrace that. It's important this morning that we embrace the biblical theology of the death of Christ. The cross is about Christ dying for sin. And the reason why it's so important that we embrace that because such a common and such a popular conception of the death of Christ that, that, is, uh, that is so often encountered at least among liberals and some progressive evangelicals and and, uh, obviously unbelieving seculars are quite willing to believe, is that Christ's death is all about providing an inspiring example of self-sacrifice. See, that's why they say anybody would believe in this, because it's inspiring. Even an unbeliever can believe in in Jesus to a point. Uh, it's, it's, It's a great story. One extremely charismatic, uh, gifted, wise man uh, who gave up his life for his ideals. That sounds very American in some ways. But it's not that. And, and that whole ideology shatters upon the rock of verse 3 where Paul says, Christ died for sins. A substitutionary death, taking our sins upon Him, receiving the outpouring of divine curse and wrath in order to redeem us. But then Paul moves from cross to resurrection in verse 4 saying, He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. And that's the heart of the faith. There we have come to the heart of our Christian faith. There there we've come to the thing that Paul says, without that there is no Christianity. He was raised the third day. And just, just to lock this down, because he has a point in all of this, 
Remember now, in the backdrop of of all of what you're going to read Paul say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the backdrop of all of that is Paul has to make a case. Our resurrection is inseparably connected to Christ's. If Christ was raised from the dead, so will we be. If Christ did not uh, experience bodily resurrection, then we will neither. And so, with all of that on the line, the apostle doesn't just proclaim that the gospel is about Christ's death and his resurrection. He sets forth a whole series of witnesses here. In verse 5, he tells us that Jesus appeared uh, to Cephas and then the twelve. And by the way, by the way that's a very important um, historical reference there because we know that Jesus did appear to Peter on the first day, early on in the day, and then later on to the twelve. And what's so significant about that particular meeting is recorded for us in Luke chapter 24, 39 and 40. Uh, Jesus appears to his apostles and he says, Behold my hands and my feet, this is I myself, handle me and see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. You see, the whole point of of this particular appearance, at least as is recorded to us in Scripture, is so that we would understand that Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the dead. It wasn't just... uh, it wasn't just an apparition. It wasn't just a vision that the apostles had. It wasn't just spiritual. He, he goes out of his way and he says, See me, handle me, touch me. And that's obviously being alluded to here by the Apostle Paul. That's what's in the backdrop of citing it like he has according to the historical record. He appeared to Cephas and then he appeared to the twelve. And then he appeared to the five hundred. He says in verse 6, The whole way he uh, draws out this testimony to the witness of the 500, to the bodily resurrection of Christ, is is to the effect that, hey, if you have any doubts about the bodily resurrection of Christ, we can go look them up. We can go look them up. Then he talks about, uh, he brings in the testimony of James. He appeared to James, and this is a reference to the brother of Jesus. A very significant reference to James because uh, we know that uh, James, the brother of Jesus, did not believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Messiah uh, during the earthly life of Christ. But you see, the resurrection changed everything. The resurrection changed everything for James. He, he, uh, he believed that this, this uh, half-brother, his earthly brother in a sense, the one who he shared a bunk bed with, was really the, the Son of God, the Savior. So he says, you can talk to James, who was then the, the leader of the church of, the Jeruz- of Jerusalem. And then he says, he appeared to all of the apostles. And then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. What he's doing is he's placing his, uh, his experience of seeing the bodily resurrected Christ on par with all of these apostles. He's closing the circle of witnesses, but he's saying for sure... Uh, my seeing the bodily resurrected Christ is of the same evidentiary proof and eyewitness testimony as the other apostles. Well, again, the point is to proclaim all of this to make the point Christ really did rise from the dead. And before we move on to to finish off our point here, I, I do think that it's useful for us to linger 
over this text. It's important for us to linger over what Paul is saying. It's important for us this morning to linger next to the empty tomb. It's important for us to, 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 sit, to sit and to listen to the eyewitnesses. It's so easy for us to grow weak in our faith, to have our convictions about the gospel eroded. Obviously, our own sins will do that on us, but, but even the constant, um, the constant doubting of the world. The constant news headlines, the, the constant testimony of the experts, uh, the constant uh, sneering at the concept of a resurrected Savior being the foundation of our faith. You see, this, this works to undermine that. And it's good for us, as we have all of that in the background this morning, to think here with the Apostle Paul, Jesus really did rise from the dead. It's of first importance. There's no faith without it. There's no forgiveness without it. And just so we would be sure of that, he brings out this whole laundry list of witnesses so that we would believe. So that we would believe when the Bible tells us that Jesus did rise from the dead, that we would understand that our faith rests upon real historical fact. But all of that, uh, the Apostle Paul knew as he was heading into this discussion of the resurrection here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's kind of interesting if you think about it, because the Apostle Paul has sort of set up a trap for these Corinthians. As I said, he, he takes them down memory lane. He jogs their mind about history. He says, I really did preach this to you. And and then he goes on to preach and to summarize that resurrection message and story. And and all of the Corinthians now are leaning forward on their seat. They're shaking their heads in agreement. Yes, they know this. And then Paul says, well, how can some of you then say? How can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? And then he fashions that link. You believe Jesus died from you believe that Jesus died and rose again? He said, So will you. There is an inseparable connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the believer. And you remember the whole reason uh, why he did this is not just to refute that a particular false doctrine. But now as we bear down uh, towards the conclusion, as Paul pulls the threads together, as he wraps his argument up, as he begins to really proclaim this promise for the believers, what does it mean for us? Well, this wonderful soaring note here in verse 57 is what it means. Because of the inseparable connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the believer... Paul proclaims the certainty of the victory of the Lord Jesus. Paul proclaims the certainty of Christ swallowing up death according to prophecy and gospel proclamation. We are to have confidence this morning, people of God, that we will experience this victory. We will take part in this victory. This victory will be worked upon us Christ will 
raise us from the dead because he has to. There is an inseparable connection between Christ's resurrection and our own. It's the first fruits. It's a down payment. It's what ensures and secures for us our own resurrection. This victory of Christ over death. As we think about this passage this morning, in terms of what it means, I want, I want to give us a couple of applications in conclusion. Because Paul does proclaim the promise of victory. Paul does proclaim the means of the victory. But Paul also proclaims the meaning of this victory for us. And the meaning of this victory for us is, first of all, courage to die. The meaning of this victory is courage to die. You could turn back with me one more time to the book of Isaiah. I certainly believe this is in the backdrop of some of the things that the Apostle is saying. But Isaiah 26, this is a passage that every believer ought to have in their arsenal. Isaiah chapter 26, in in verse 19, uh, the prophet uh, speaks about this great reversal, which we even read earlier in in our sermon, where he says about the earth, your dead will rise, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to departed spirits. See that... That note of gospel promise and victory and resurrection. Verse 21 again. Behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Again, you see here, promise of resurrection. But notice what's in between. This is what's to be in your arsenal. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. You see what is sandwiched in between these proclamations of resurrection? It's an invitation for you, the believer, to accept death with courage. He says... Enter into your rooms. And Mary the Klein has brilliant exposition on this passage. But he argues here that this idea of rooms comes from the domestic sphere. As if the prophet is inviting you into your bedroom. The place of comfort and calm. A place where we retire to at the end of the day in order to be refreshed and and be ready to go back to serve the Lord the next day. He says as if the prophet invites us. He says, come my people. And then he reinforces the calm and the safety of that particular place by saying, hide for a little while. It's as if we're merely going into the bedroom for a short nap. You see, what what Paul is proclaiming, I believe, here in 1 Corinthians 15, based upon the prophecy here, the prophetic message of Isaiah, is that on account of this victory of Christ over the grave, and the coming victory when Christ will swallow up death, in view of that, God's people have courage to die. They have courage to die. To enter into their room... For a momentary sleep. But Paul doesn't just proclaim this message of resurrection 
as if it were only a call to have courage to die. But fascinatingly, in verse 58 of our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, he tells us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the coming victory where he swallows up death is encouragement to live. Notice the therefore. Therefore, my beloved brethren, linking this particular admonition which is about to come with all of what he has said about the resurrection. Therefore, you see, he's grounding this admonition in promise. Because of the victory of Christ, he says, live. Live. Be steadfast and immovable. Let's be established in your commitment to serve the Lord day in and day out. And he says, not just that we're to be steadfast, but abounding, abounding, approaching all of our labor, all of our endeavor, all of our activity, all of our engagement with intensity, with joy, with might, with strength, with resolve. Abound, he says, because of the victory of Christ. You know, one of the hardest, well, maybe not the hardest, but certainly a difficult task of the believer is to maintain that devotion, that resolve, that joy, that that approach to work and to all of life with, with zeal and energy. And one of the reasons why is because of the apparent futility of it all. The apparent futility of it all. Dreams die. Promises are broken. Relationships dissolve. Expectations aren't met. Our work sometimes and very often crumbles. What's the point? What is the point? It seems futile. The Apostle Paul knows that our experience is often, or at least feels like, this experience of futility as we live out our days in the midst of this vast graveyard. What he does here with that therefore is it's almost as if he takes a flag of victory and he plants it upon the surface of our experience and our labor and our work. And he says, all of it, All of it, everything that you do, all of your activities, all of your relationships, all of the ways in which you serve the Lord in this life, everything, he says. Everything matters. Because every step that all of us take, all of the actions that we engage in, everything that we do, is headed towards this certain, powerful, joyful conclusion. This wonderful promise of verse 57. God gives us victory. The victory of death being swallowed up through Jesus Christ. Let's encourage our hearts and minds with these words. Amen.